Pierre, I'm all now to call defending your right to speak and to listen. This is the Free Speech Union Podcast. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another episode of the Free Speech Union podcast. If you are joining us after this live recording or if you're joining us live on Facebook, great to have you along. I'll just uh, let a few of our people come online as they see their notification that we're going live now. Uh, It's a pleasure to get to sit down with uh, three fantastic commentators this afternoon as uh, we we talk through the state of free speech, uh, where we've been this year and and where we're going to in in a pretty significant year that's coming up. So it's a pleasure. Pleasure to have the former editor of the Dominion, uh, what is now the Dominion Post, uh, based in Wellington, Carl Dufresne. Uh, Carl, you and I are both based out in the Wairarapa. Um, I hope uh, the rest of the country is getting better weather than we've had the past couple of days, but I think summer is somewhere around the corner, so we'll get there. And then uh, Dr... Dr. Natasha Hamilton-Hart joining us from Auckland, based up at uh, University of Auckland there, uh, and Alex Pink, a consultant also based in uh, in Auckland. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as I said, we, we just want to kind of take a stock of free speech, the work the Free Speech Union has done over this past year, and where we're going into uh, the, the the state of our conversation as we go into an election near next year. So, so Carl, I wonder if we can uh, start with you what are perhaps the highs and lows of free speech this year? It's, it's, it's been a very topical issue, slightly divided year. Where do you think we've done well? Where do you think we could have done better? Well, I think uh, overall the free speech union has performed remarkably, not just over the past year, but um, but since its formation. Uh, an inspired idea, admittedly um, based on an overseas um, concept, but one that has worked extraordinarily well here. Um, I think the Free Speech Annual Conference, the first annual conference of the Free Speech Union, was it was a milestone. Um, I made a point of attending and was very pleased that I did. Terrific speakers, uh, not just um, the, shall we say, official panellists, but a lot of the speakers from the floor mm. were very, very impressive. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed by the way the Free Speech Union has kept on top of so many uh, so many issues over the past year because the, to be honest, the attacks on free speech are so constant and they come from so many directions that they're almost overwhelming. And uh, I particularly, as I say, admire the Free Speech Union for for not letting any anything get past it. Um, it's 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 extremely. Uh, vigilant, for which um, I, I admire. Um, uh, there have been highs and lows, as you say. Um, I think one low was the loss in the Supreme Court action over the over the deplatforming of the uh, of the Canadians, um, uh, whose names for the moment escape me. You know who I mean. Um, that that case went through. Um, went through the High Court, the Court of Appeal, and eventually the Supreme Court, and the Free Speech Union was unsuccessful, sadly, in in establishing the important principle that people should not be allowed to force the abandonment of speaking engagements simply by threatening uh, violent action or disruption. Mm. Um, so the, the Supreme Court didn't accept that, and I see that the Free Speech Union is now going to tackle that via another angle, and that is through through Parliament. Um, good luck with that. Uh, I mean, I mean that sincerely, but I also mean it slightly cynically and sceptically. Mm. 
Mm. Um, I, I, I haven't always agreed with the line of the free speech union, as I think you know, Jonathan, but uh, overall I, I think it's a fantastic force for good. Um, and, uh, I mean, you can tell us what the sort of uh, membership numbers and support numbers are, um, but from, from memory, uh, if the numbers I've heard are correct, uh, there is a huge level of support out there and it's growing all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, and, and as the uh, I think it was Jefferson who who said the the price of freedom is uh, eternal vigilance, and so we th- these are these are important, crucial uh, aspects of our way of life that do require us to to be attentive to. Um, Natasha, I wonder if I can draw you in here because you work in the tertiary education sector. That's an area where the Free Speech Union has identified probably a lot of the uh, suspicion, if we want to put it lightly, or outright antagonism to free speech and and why progressively as a culture we're moving away from that. Uh, Your Vice Chancellor, Dawn Freshwater, has has been on a bit of a journey as well, going from last year uh, with the responses to the Listener 7, which were probably not as strongly in support as we would have liked them to be to this year, also releasing an op-ed, and we'll get into that shortly, but but what have been some of the highs and lows within the university for free speech uh, for you? Well, I think, I think the university environment is really mixed. Um, I think you're right. There is uh, a constrained atmosphere for, for certain views and perspectives to be aired within the university, and I think that was picked up very nicely by the FSU survey, um, which I think was a was a you know as a social scientist I I view this as a pretty good effort trying to canvas a wide range of opinion. I know it did face some critiques on social media as not being fully representative or fully scientific. I would challenge those people to say we'll come up with a better survey that's because right, right. Um, of course there are always holes one can uh, point to, but I thought it was about as good as we've seen so far and far better than the very anecdotal and self-selecting responses that we've seen from other attempts to canvas opinion. So I thought that survey was important and I think it was telling. Um, I think in terms of of the behaviour of my colleagues, both in public and in private, we have some wonderful examples of academics who have spoken out uh, in the media, who have um, often in the face of considerable hostility from either the public or their colleagues, um, and often have had very critical things to say about their own universities. And and I think this does actually show that there are people who are willing um, to speak out and and they're still alive and around um, to tell the tale. So that it's not all doom and gloom. Mm. But the concern is is that that the exceptional people who do speak out um, and write for the public media and put their faces out there I don't think that they are representative. Um, I think it takes quite a bit of courage, especially when people would be saying things that are currently not in political favour or not in, or not or not so close to the social norms of the university class. And for those, you know, so I think we can't extrapolate and say that because particularly senior official, senior people often towards the end of their career feel that they have the license to speak out. I wouldn't assume that that applies to people at earliest, earlier career stages um, or people who don't possess exceptional courage. So I do think it's a mixed bag. And I think the, the shifting position of our vice chancellor at the University of Auckland is representative of actually the pressures that are on university administrators. Um, 
I think they all inherit to some degree at, at least some understanding of the importance of freedom of expression and academic freedom. And yet they are also facing quite a lot of other pressures to to adopt the sort of safety culture and protective sort of stance that leads towards uh, inhibitions on speech. So I think it's a real mixed mixed bag. But I think that drawing on that, where is that pressure primarily coming from? Is it is it is it something situated amongst the, uh, academic staff primarily, or is it uh, students? My my, my experience uh, is that New Zealand is probably in a different place. Uh, with regards to other anglophonic countries in terms of the university culture, where in the United States we see these colleges that have been overrun by militant students. That hasn't been my perspective as much. Where do you think this is stemming from? I think it's coming from a variety of places, and and one of them is actually the influence of what is happening in other universities overseas Mm. and that as they develop more restrictive speech codes uh, and issues bubble up on their campuses, I think administrators here actually look at that and think, well, maybe we should do something like that too. There's a whole lot of pressure for sort of following the crowd. Um, You're right. I don't think the mainstream of our students are snowflakes or particularly concerned to shut other people down. There will be, of course, a small number who are particularly zealous in that direction, and I think they have outsized um, voice on some occasions. Um, But I think it's one of those issues, and there are models in political science and economics that demonstrate that you can have a small number of people exercise disproportionate influence on an institutional environment because for them this is the number one issue and it's a priority mm-hmm. and everyone else who might not agree with them is actually busy doing other stuff so people who have a particular barrow to push whether it's getting a more restrictive code of conduct in or a more restrictive free speech policy can often wield quite significant power uh, even though their views are not necessarily widely shared but they hold them very deeply isn't that interesting that the, this uh, counterintuitive notion that actually a lot of uh, the development of progress that we see in society doesn't only come because a majority hold that view, but often it's a minority of well-placed, vocal, strategically orientated individuals who pursue that. And and uh, Alex, you, you've recently done uh, a fair bit of work uh Within this conversation, you, you've written a, a, a very um, engaging piece uh, a report. I, I don't, don't want to minimise it like a piece, uh, quite an extensive report on uh, the constitutional ramifications that have emerged from the response that we had to COVID-19 here. And I want to get into some of that, but but surely uh, as you've looked at that and, and other aspects of the public conversation this year, uh, it, we see some trends coming through in terms of the, the public debate. What are some of the highs of that debate and, and maybe some of the Thanks, Jonathan. Um, I'm just happy you said it was engaging, to be honest. Um, But look, I I think two of the features that I saw in the the research that I did, um, which uh, for the benefit of um, the vast majority of people who haven't seen it, is uh, is looking at New Zealand's constitutional response to, to COVID. Um, is really, uh, so, so two particular elements um, are what I would call both a, a toxic discourse and a twisted discourse. And I think in, in many ways COVID has done with political conversation and, and free speech and public debate, what it's done to a lot of things, it's amplified and accelerated longer running trends. 
And what I mean by a toxic discourse, um, I think was exemplified pretty well in a couple of decisions that the High Court made uh, in cases that were challenges to uh, to vaccine mandates, um, where they actually made a couple of what I think are pretty extraordinary name suppression decisions. Um, and you know, um, the, the starting point for this, I guess, is the principle of open justice. Courts don't make name suppression decisions lightly, especially not in civil matters. Um, but the reason that they did this, I think, is what was so striking. In two separate cases, you had different high court judges saying, we're going to suppress the names of the people who are challenging these vaccination mandates um, because there's a real fear, a real a genuine fear of personal and professional consequences for them if we don't do this. And we have to make these decisions to uphold the rights of a minority. And frankly, I think that's an alarm bell ringing. Um, And it says something about obviously a particular time and a particular moment in our COVID response and sort of the arc of whatever trend we're on as a country. But but like I say, I I think that's really just an amplification of something that's already going on. Um, And you sort of saw this in, in what I think was at times a stifling consensus around some of the COVID conversation, which even after sort of the, the full force of the emergency um, had receded, is, is still being echoed. Um, so there was a report from a New Zealand Bar Association conference um, earlier this year, uh, where apparently some senior lawyers were um, sort of wagging their fingers at lawyers who uh, were thought to be not sufficiently careful about challenging the government in a, in a time of emergency, the, the implication being, you know, don't, don't rock the boat, don't undermine confidence in what the government is doing. And I, and I think the, um, you know, the uh, just the paradoxical thing to me is it's actually those challenges that, that give us confidence in what is going on. The fact that ideas are being tested, proposals, solutions, evidence are being challenged and critiqued. That's actually why we can trust a system uh, and, and a government who's leading that response. Um, so I thought those, and I haven't got onto the twisted discourse, but yet, but I'll, but I'll pause in a sec. Um, but I think just, just those sort of trends, I think, are... Um, like I say, a bit of a bit of a canary in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting. You're saying actually the right to challenge doesn't rock the boat. It's, it's what gives us confidence to buy into it here. And you know th- that that's very consistent with what we constantly insist at the Free Speech Union that actually the right to to say things other people don't want to hear is actually a key to social cohesion because it, it it gives us a way to converse, to debate, and to actually come together through those conversations. And mm-hmm. and paradoxically, you know, we we had the first reading of uh, amendment to the human rights uh act which is what we're calling the hate speech laws go through yesterday this is done in the name of social cohesion uh and and yes we know from overseas examples it will have the opposite effect uh, than than what's intended and and so carl I, I wonder if we can jump in one of your uh recent blog posts you claim that social cohesion is going to be the big issue uh, next year as we go into an election year. We're looking at a society that is increasingly polarized. Why are we divided? Well, um, Jonathan, you re- you referred to the survey um, conducted. It wasn't actually conducted by Bryce Edwards, but it was reported in some right. depth um, mm. on his on his website. Um, which confirmed uh, the perception that social division uh, is deepening and worsening uh, and postulated that this was because of inequality issues, issues devoted or concerned or arising from housing and equity issues and that sort. And and I went on to suggest that, in fact, it was much broader than that, that there was a a much uh, more uh, insidious 
um, form of division arising within New Zealand society um, in the form of identity politics. And this is nothing. This is nothing new. It's certainly not an original thought. Um, but it, um, it is something that has become progressively more marked in New Zealand society um, over several years now. And if it if it isn't um, the crucial election uh, issue next year, uh, then I certainly think it should be. Uh, because we have been, um, by any standards, New Zealand has been an admirably successful, cohesive, settled society uh, with very low degrees of polarisation. Uh, there's been, over decades, there has been a, a broad political consensus encompassing both the major parties about the sort of society New Zealand uh, wants to be. And there's been... There have been differences around the edges, but the sort of basic concept of the sort of society we want to be, there is broad unanimity. And that's been that's really been shattered uh, in recent years by the perception that we're not a we're not a single community with common uh, values and aspirations. We're a collection of diverse um, communities that are all kind of competing with each other. Uh, and that's that's how I view identity politics. And I think it's had a it's doing untold damage uh, mm. to New Zealand society. Of course, there will be people who, say, who would say, well, of course he can say that because he's privileged. Um, and it's, that's true, I am, I am privileged. But I don't think that's, that's not the reason I'm saying this. I think any concerned member of New Zealand society standing back and looking at what's been going on um, in the universities, um, and, and, uh, and that's where I think a lot of the um, problems originate. I'm sorry, Natasha, and I take I take your point that the picture of the universities is 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 perhaps more diverse than than we might imagine. I'm also going to say the media, um, and, and I think the media. Uh, have to accept a lot of responsibility for promoting the the, the notion and the concept of identity politics and and creating uh, social division as a result. Mm. Well, don't get ahead of me, Carl. There because uh, we're going to get into the media sure and, and and some some interesting statistics that have come out of the world of journalism study there. But I remember the first day uh, I was at university, my first lecturer, uh, Professor John Johansson, who uh, relatively well known at, at Victoria University, got up and he said, "In New Zealand, we have a number of parties, two large ones, uh, national." Uh, excuse me, he's out of Labour. Labour, they're a lot like the Democrats uh, in the United States, and national. Well, they're a lot like the Democrats as well. And it, it kind of shows that uh, in reality, like you're saying, that even the political spectrum, but the social spectrum, the cultural spectrum, we, we have had, had high social cohesion, uh, even across uh, OECD nations, other, other developed Western nations, we might say, uh, we, we have had high numbers, but that is changing. And and. You know, there, there may be, we may jump to quick assumptions saying uh, because of uh, the government we have or because of COVID or because of the, the COVID vaccine response we've had, this has caused polarisation. It's interesting, Alex, you're saying perhaps this is actually because of longer standing trends uh, that have been amplified or accelerated by these issues, but not caused by them necessarily. But Carl, I want to I want to hear your thoughts on um, one of the comments that uh, Dr. Bryce Edwards made in in his report uh, on the study. He says there is a tendency to view a lot of New Zealand's current social cohesion challenges as primarily due to conspiracy theories and opposition to vaccines. 
This is certainly the argument being put forward strongly by academics from the Disinformation Project. And responding to the Herald, Herald survey, Kate Hanna emphasized the problem of misinformation and disinformation as being at the heart of the problem. Academic focus on global conspiracy theories, social media, the internet, and public ignorance can distract from understanding and addressing material inequality. And so we do see from uh, these relatively prominent uh, commentators uh, at the Disinformation Project a fixation there really on uh, the roles of uh, access to information with uh, uh, misinformation, disinformation, speech really, speech that they often uh, clearly disagree with. What do you think that tells us of the tenor of our public debate with some of these uh, prominent, we might use the word elite institutions that are commenting on social cohesion and have the ear of many of our ministers and, and our prime minister as well? Um, can I just say that, Jonathan, that I think there has probably been way too much focus on disinformation and misinformation and conspiracy theory. Um, and that has achieved the purpose of, of, of ramping up this sense of social dislocation that I'm, that I'm talking about. And I'd be interested in Alex's views on this because it seems to me that um, the whole, the whole uh, uprising over uh, COVID and the whole vaccination mandate issue uh, brought to the surface, it, it, I'm not saying it created it, but it certainly brought to the surface um, a, a deep kind of structural division uh, within New Zealand society. And coming back to my point about um, certain people and certain influential voices uh, focusing on and amplifying the role of conspiracy theories and disinformation and misinformation, I must, I have to cite um, such things as the Stuff Fire and Fury uh, documentary, uh, which focused solely and very, very luridly almost on all these dark voice forces that are ostensibly at work. And I and I, I think they play that up to a negative effect. And at, at no stage did that documentary try to get to grips with what I think is, is the real issue, which is why were people feeling so uh, polarised over the whole uh, vaccination question? I admit I still have no understanding of that at all. I, I, don't, I, just, I just don't get that, and I keep waiting for somebody to explain how all this has come about. Maybe it's too soon. Alex would have a better idea on that than I do. Alex, do you think there is a dangerous fixation on some of the symptoms rather than the underlying cause? Yeah, I think I think the underlying causes are where we need to be focusing. Um, part of the challenge here is that particularly when we're talking about something like social cohesion, those those underlying causes and those trends, they are they're long running, they're complicated. Um, and the, the future is going to look quite different to the past. So even just thinking about the um, comments a few moments ago about social cohesion, uh, and that perhaps arising out of a more homogenous or, or consensus-based society. Um, though, you know, the future looks very different. Um, everything from sort of demographics to census trends around things like ethnicity, religion, et cetera, the future is, is more diverse. And I think that the real question for us is, so what does cohesion look like and how do we obtain cohesion in, in a kind of a diverse society like that? And I, I mean, I would come back to the importance of trust. Um, I think of trust as both sort of a paradoxically both a, a social glue and a social lubricant. Um, so it, it holds us together, but it also enables us to, to differ um, without that friction sort of uh, wearing, wearing us down or, or, or doing too much damage. 
And again, I think that's that's part of what you see in uh, more generally, particularly in the COVID uh, response and some of the conversations that were taking place then, was was a real a real lack of trust, um, which ironically came out of I think uh, a lack of empathy. So when you had the prime minister saying things like, "Hey, we're creating a two tier society," that's that's the way it is. Uh, it's, it's not surprising that people uh, feel a sense of distrust and that they start to pull apart. Uh, from each other. And I think that's one of the things that actually really threatens our cohesion as, as a society. Um, Paul Spoonley, who's a, um, a sociologist at uh, Massey University, a very eminent professor, sort of looked at all of this and said, well, no wonder we've radicalised people. Um, so I think actually some of the work that we've got to do ahead of us is actually kind of taking all of the, um, the nice sounding words about kindness and empathy and, and making them a bit more real and actually trying to find a way to heal and come together. Uh, and I think that's probably going to be a process that takes that takes a bit of time. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we can go back a few steps uh, there, Alex. Uh, Julie Andrews famously tells us, let's go back to the beginning, a very good place to start. Um, what is a constitution? You're writing about constitution and the impacts that have emerged from COVID. What is a constitution in terms of this conversation? Yeah, sorry, you've got Julie Andrews, uh, the song stuck in my head now, but um, so I'll try and, <laughs> and put that to one side so I can answer. So I, I think um, basically a constitution is about uh, creating public power, legitimising it, structuring it and limiting it. Uh, and it is made up of, of a wide variety of things. So particular laws and statutes uh, like the Bill of Rights Act or the Constitution Act. Uh, it's made up of common law decisions uh, of the courts uh, in, in relevant areas. Uh, it's even made up of things like conventions, which are expectations of behaviour. Um, political expectations, they're not legally enforceable, but they're still part of our constitutional fabric. And I think the Constitution is also composed of culture. Um, the political culture that, that again, sort of breathes life uh, into all of these things. Um, now, that's, as you'll see, that's a reasonably sort of uh, broad and, and fairly textured understanding of what a constitution is. But I think it helps um, It helps when you sometimes have this, uh, this common view that in New Zealand we don't have a constitution because people don't see a document called the constitution uh, like, you know, a place like um, the United States has. Uh, and, and that's why we sometimes get a call in New Zealand for a constitution, um, often to protect rights, like, say, a right uh, to, to freedom of speech. Um, and I think going back to the very beginning, as you said, Jonathan, that the starting point is actually we, we do have a constitution and a constitutional framework. Um, and so really that it's that exercise of public power and, and the limits on public power that, that really interests me and that were at the heart of what I was looking at uh, in, in that COVID research. I find it really interesting that you include culture within our constitution. Of course, New Zealand is one of only three countries in the world that, as you say, has a constitution, but not a unified one. And the United Kingdom and Israel are the other two that have this uh, more encompassing way of thinking about the constitution, I guess. And and uh, not, not to derail the conversation here, but I'm always very hesitant of the thought of trying to um, entrench or embody a single constitution because without culture, uh, without a public broadly buying into it because of a way of life, actually, ultimately, the law or a unified document isn't going to be robust enough. And, and, and you point this out a little bit. You say a healthy constitution depends on a healthy public square. And, and, and this is why, you know, we may consider Twitter, the public square of today, not a healthy expression of it, probably. But thankfully, it's a bit broader than that. Uh, you say, but our response to COVID-19 revealed a toxic public discourse. The government's response 
and public debate also lacked empathy, exacerbated divisions, and diminished social cohesion. And so I wonder, you know, you're talking about trust there. How do we go about healing? Uh, part of um, the criticism that this government has had in a way is that the words they use around kindness or empathy uh, aren't a strategy per se. And you're saying, well, actually, we need to put those words into action. Uh, what does that actually look like concretely? Hmm. Yeah, that's very that's a very good question, um, and 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 a very difficult question. I think um, there was a study that came out uh, about a year ago, I think it was, which which looked at the responses of um, people who were sort of vaccine hesitant to what the study termed vaccine uh, resistant, and sought to understand sort of where is where is that coming from, um, and what they found is that many people who were um, uh, on that spectrum from sort of hesitant to resistant um, had you know a number of sort of adverse uh, experiences in their in their history. Um, and but, but one of the things the study went on to say is that sort of overcoming that and having people kind of um, actually be willing to, to contemplate changing their minds on these things required actually really seeking to understand them, to, to listen. Um, they didn't use this word, but I would say to empathise. Um, it was actually about really trying to hear people and meet them where they were at. Uh, and and that, in a nutshell, I think is is the answer. Actually seeking to understand people, but that's but that's difficult to do. Um, when trust has has been lost, so I think it will take quite a lot of listening and, and quite a lot of hard work, um, and and it's difficult to do. I think when there's, I, I think it's been quite hard. This is the what I would call the twisted bit of the discourse I referred to earlier. I think it's quite hard when it hasn't been easy for all of people's values to be brought into the public square. So you know we've heard a lot about kindness, a particular and I think reasonably shallow version of kindness, um, but we haven't heard much about people's uh, sort of other or broader sets of values. Um, an example I could give, I won't go into it now, but, it, but you know, is even in the way that um, courts looked at religious freedom cases in, uh, in kind of the COVID period. But until we get to a point where we're prepared to really listen to people and understand them, and until we get to a point where we're allowed, we're going to let them bring their values into the conversation, um, I, I think we'll remain uh, a bit stuck. You know, that's a little bit of a negative note. To, so I'll flip it around and the positive is, uh, I think the answer is really listening to people um, and, and letting them bring all of their values um, to the fore and, uh, and, and seeking to understand them. In, in a day and age where there is so much information and so much noise constantly blaring at us, I don't think it's surprising to see people entrenching more and more into their positions. Where probably uh, 200 years ago, it was hard enough to change someone's mind, to be persuasive. Now, we consider it almost impossible to have meaningful, persuasive conversations. Do you think that just the sheer volume, the amount of speech that we experience in, in day-to-day life actually accounts for part of the problem, part of the regression that we have in terms of free speech, people shutting down because it's just all too much to try and have a meaningful conversation out of it? I think I think it could well be the case. I mean, w- one of the challenges, obviously, is that whatever view you hold, you can find something that will sort of support it and, and legitimate it. Um, it's all there on the internet. Um, and, you know, silos, echo chambers, uh, all, all of those kind of things have, have sort of been magnified. Um, I mean, may- maybe it brings out something that I think was a bit implicit in what I was saying a moment ago, which, which is actually the importance of getting back together in person. Uh, it's... Um, uh, sort of, I hesitate slightly before before I um, out myself quoting Brene Brown, but um, you know she says it's it's hard to hate close up. It's it's difficult to um, to be divided from people and to to sort of see them as the other and as people who are um, you know fundamentally unlike us when we're actually face to face. So I think part of um, 
again, perhaps part of the solution is is getting back together in person in as many ways as we can. And, you know, day to day, what does that look like? That looks like community groups, community involvement. It looks like being part of your local sports clubs, et cetera. And, and all of us sort of coming out from behind the laptop screen um, and, and actually engaging again uh, in, in real life with all the sort of messiness and, and health and other risks um, that that, uh, that uh, might imply. Um, it, it, but it's, I, I, it's comments like that, Alex, that get us branded as radicals. Come on, you, this is just way too outlandish stuff for us to be considering. No, certainly in terms of, of the Christmas season, a very important reminder. Uh, Natasha, I mean, in line with that, uh, at the university, what used to be a very tangible uh, personal experience uh, for, for people there on a university campus in lectures has now changed into something much more ethereal with uh, I mean, obviously it was happening a little bit before COVID, but post-COVID, many students choosing to simply be educated uh, online now, uh, remotely. Uh, do you think that is, well, do you allow your classes to uh, to only access it remotely? And what do you think the implications of that might be? Oh, um, I teach in person. I hate online teaching. Um, but you're right. The university has sent a very strong message to students and more or less telling them to stay home. Um, because although we're all required to go and teach in person, unless we have a very good reason not to, the university has also requires us to put all of our lectures online immediately. And so for many students, when faced with the, you know, do I have to get out of bed and get dressed? Or um, do I want to re rearrange my work schedule so that it doesn't conflict with my lectures? Um, the path of least resistance is to just wait for those online lectures, which are not nearly as good, because one of the things that will happen in a good lecture is you will talk to the students next to you. You'll interact directly with your, your professor or your, your lecturer, and you will actually meet people that are not already in your most immediate social circle. And I absolutely reiterate what Alex just said about meeting in person. But I think it's actually more important, there, there is another dimension to that, which is that it's vital that we meet across our social and political divides. And I think we used to do that um, much more than we do now. And one of the reasons, you know, so people at the sports club, at the local gardening club, whatever the social organisation, this is the civic fabric of society, um, and versions of that happened in the university. You might not like everyone in your department. Um, you might disagree with them vehemently, but you were forced to work together as colleagues. Now, we do a lot less of that. We do a lot of less of that social bridging. And I think one of the reasons for it um, is something that actually impacts the environment for free speech in the university. But I see similar things happening in a lot of social organisations, which is that and this is kind of paradoxical, but they've they've expanded their organisational mission. Um, so the university, you know, used to basically be about the, the pursuit and dissemination of knowledge. And now if you go and look on our mission, purpose and values um, statement, we've got a whole lot of other things in there. Now, whether you agree or you disagree is in a sense beside the point. When you go from the pursuit of knowledge, which is the entire purpose of the university, to social justice or inclusion and equity or demonstrating our commitment to territory treaty, you will inevitably create opportunities for exclusion. And um, you, you lay down an institutional view, which anyone who finds themselves on the wrong side of that view um, is going to immediately feel that they can't actually speak out. 
properly. And I think the same thing has happened in many of our social organisations. I used to be involved in two um, environmental groups. And when they explicitly adopted non-environmental statements of value about things that didn't include me and didn't include the core mission, it actually means that what we saw was a peeling off of people who weren't on board on that particular point. And that is a great loss for us because it means we've lost an opportunity to go, well, you know, we might vote different ways, but we can all go pick up litter or plant trees or play sport or whatever. But when an organization, and I include the university in this, when they start taking on overtly political and sort of social engineering projects, mm. it actually creates a polarization and it suppresses the opportunity for people to feel that they can speak freely because now they're speaking against the weight of institutional orthodoxy and some people won't care they'll be outspoken but an awful lot of people will learn to remain quiet mm. of course well part of the work that we've done this year has been releasing a series of reports on academic freedom and free speech uh, at universities in New Zealand and and one of the questions that we asked uh, academics was how freely they felt to speak out on issues related to the treaty and and you know th th there's four of us in this discussion today would probably have five different opinions on the treaty and how we incorporate it in society. So I'm certainly not trying to present it as a simple issue that only has one answer. But problematically, uh, across almost all eight universities, there were just as many who felt severely constrained in their ability to discuss this issue as those who felt free to discuss. And, and I think that probably... We, we, we can't prove this, but it probably aligns to a certain extent on what they thought about the issue in substance. Uh, do you think students experience this in the same way? In, in the coming year, we're going to be including students in the survey, but we haven't up until this point. Anecdotally, do you think we're actually raising a generation of students that feel incapable of speaking it out, or are they not even aware uh, that they think differently? It's really hard to tell because I, you know, the, again, partly because we have so much less face-to-face -face interaction, mm -hmm. it's very hard to know what students are thinking and saying or wishing they could say about certain issues. But what I have, um, so I can't really tell you how it's received, but what I can observe is that there is increasingly the development of an institutional view on the status of the treaty, what it should mean, what the university's obligations should be. And that is a pretty singular view, even though, of course, you know, there is massive scope for constitutional scholars, for political scientists, for, for philosophers, for anyone to have a whole variety of views on that. But what I feel in the university is that we actually have an increasingly singular view, which is, in fact, in my university's case, I understand, going to be distilled in a single course that will cover the treaty and Te Almari and other associated issues, and that this will be taught um, as institutional orthodoxy is my suspicion. Now, I haven't seen the curriculum. I don't know how it's being taught. I was very alarmed to see, I mean, this isn't this particular course, but as certain courses in the university have felt impelled to adopt a perspective um, of the treaty and uh, Te Ao Māori in the course content. Um, there are examples that I have seen people put on social media that suggest that this is being taught in a very didactic um, 
uh, limiting sort of way in which debate and disagreement are clearly not invited. And that that is a worry. Now, I don't know how extensive that is. I would love to see a whole variety of courses on the Treaty of Waitangi being taught from a whole variety of different perspectives. Um, and that, to me, would actually create an environment in which students could articulate a whole variety of sort of expressions and develop their own opinions. But I fear that that, in fact, we're being channeled into a very particular view and a very particular interpretation. And that this is being embedded not just in teaching, but in um, our research environment, our funding environment. And for some people, potentially, they feel it as an, as an element within their, their promotion prospects as academics. And so, you know, the, these high level statements of principle work their way through much sort of more specific university policies and practices. And they, they create a narrowing of what is permissible to say. Mm. Um, and that that is certainly felt by staff. I don't know to what extent it is felt by students, but if you're being taught and examined in a way that really make, leaves no room for discussion, then I can only infer that students will feel that there's a correct answer and they're expected to give it. Well, and going back to your comments earlier around questions that were raised about the academic freedom survey that we put out, we were the first to admit that the survey raised more questions than answers. We're not trying to put it out there as a big I told you so, but where academic freedom and, and, and the various aspects of that and the underpinning free speech environment that upholds that, where it is located in law universities have a statutory requirement to preserve this. It's, it's it's not just cultural, it is legal. And yet, without without understanding where we sit in terms of academic freedom, how do we know if they are upholding the law? And so that's why we'll, we'll be extending the survey into students, saying, if we don't know the answer to this, we really must. Otherwise, uh, how can we say we are upholding the law here? But the, the point I think I, I, I take from what you're sharing there, Natasha, is that if people are sitting there being told, unless, it, it, unless you agree with us, uh, you are actually a racist or or, or whatever conversation that may be. It, it, it is often distilled down to you are a bad person unless you agree with me on dot, dot, dot. And, and I wonder what sort of uh, positive or productive conversation can come out of such a reductionist view. And, and I think uh, a comment that Professor uh, Dawn Freshwater made in her op-ed last week in the Herald, uh, really drawing quite a bright line under free speech, we, we were very impressed with the comments she made. One of the comments was, we have a responsibility to encourage debate on all topics and to teach students to be able to consider and debate controversial issues both within the university and embracing the freedom of expression in our wider community. Universities have a duty to their students and community to advance learning, develop intellectual independence and debate knowledge and ideas. And I think it's a very strong stand. She concludes with this. We believe there is much to learn in debating ideas and in hearing opposing views. And that's probably an underlying pers perspective that that. 20 or 30 years ago would have been an assumption most people had that you can learn something from them that unfortunately no longer is held. I wonder, do you think there's an aspect of, uh, I, I can't help but think that there's a moralizing aspect of it because we've come to associate people's views on these issues as whether they are a good person or a bad person that, that shuts down the debate. Now, I, I can't learn something from someone who was so evil or so wrong or so you know immorally corrupted what can I learn from that person do you think viewing it in such moralizing terms actually breaks our social cohesion yeah I think I think it is an issue I think establishing for instance 
that one could have a range of perspectives on the Treaty of Waitangi and that none of them necessarily paint you as an evil person or racist. Um, I think that is a bit of a hurdle for some people. I don't think actually most people have such doctrinaire and rigid views. I think it's a case that there's a sort of a somewhat hegemonic discourse that has taken hold and a relatively small number of people in quite powerful positions create an institutional orthodoxy. I don't actually think most people are so sensitive to debate on these issues. Um, there are a whole rather, you know, a lot of the other hot button topics that often get tinged with this sort of emotive, moralistic overlay. Um, I actually think in, in, in the sort of wider society, um, this is the, these are not so sensitive, actually. Um, I, I'm going to mangle the quote, but I do recall a, a message from George, George Orwell, um, you know, more than half a century ago, who wrote that it, it takes the British intelligentsia um, a whole lot of education to believe in anything so stupid. Um, you know, sometimes I think the world of the university and its sort of allied professions are particularly rarefied and and issues take on a sense of moral urgency and, and exclusivity that, you know, everyone who's not with me is wrong in a moral sense, that I actually think the wider public is has a much more sensible position on in most cases. Um, so I think it's actually almost that the universities could step down a bit and get out and talk to normal people a bit more um, and discover that there's actually people on all sides of these debates. Um, uh, Alex, I wonder if I can draw you in on this, because when you talk in terms of, of kindness or empathy, uh, in, in the past, uh, this moral framework would have been held more broadly with our society through a, a three-theistic a perspective that they grounded a, a moral perspective. And that, that's largely absent now for a large part of our society. Do you think that there is um, a, a, a question around the way we consider right and wrong that's perhaps paradoxically is related to who we're willing to speak with? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, in, in another uh, another podcast, I said not that long ago that I think um, I think we need to sort of remoralize the public square. And I don't mean moralizing at people. I, I mean, a sense in which sort of what I was trying to say before, we can actually bring all our values um, into the public square because I mean, actually, those things are under the surface. Um, they're there anyway. That the better thing would be to sort of elevate them to the top and and actually speak about them openly and honestly. I think that's actually what you see going on with something like the um, uh, the, the controversy about the the listener letter, uh, for example. Which is, I mean, the, the values debate that's going on there. I think is sort of twofold. One, uh, what counts as science, because science has this sort of mantle uh, in our society now as as sort of the single source of of truth and knowledge. Uh, and, and what's the status of Indigenous or non-Western uh, bodies of knowledge? And those are both really important things for us to be talking about, and we should be able to debate them openly, and, and it would do us all uh, much more of a service if we if we did do that. Um, but one of the things that I think is really important as we do that, it's sort of back to that idea of trust and a more diverse society, because we talk a lot about the importance of diversity these days, and, and there are some really good reasons for that. But I think at the same time, we need to recapture the idea of unity uh, alongside this diversity. And that, I think, is a, is a moral uh, a moral value um, that we could actually be speaking about and, and bringing into the public square and bringing into our, uh, into our institutions. And I think Natasha's point earlier about actually meeting with a, with a diverse range of people, but, but in something that has common purpose, 
it's just one of the actually really easy and and traditional ways to do something like that. Um, in, in my life, that's typically been in things like sports, uh, or I'm a churchgoer, and in my church, I meet people who have a, a you know common faith to me. Um, but there are theological differences we debate. There are different politics. There's different work experience and life experience, and so on. And actually, you you come together with something in common. But there's a whole range of of difference where you learn from each other and you uh, and you grow and you actually experience. Um, you, you actually develop tolerance, which I think is is one of the words we haven't used so far, but but which I think is something that's sort of a bit of a, a missing ingredient in a lot of these debates. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carl, you mentioned earlier that um, in addition to the university, which we've been discussing a fair bit here, uh, the media has a, a large part to play in the conversation we're having publicly and in our social cohesion. I want to uh, draw, just as we come to a close here, on the Worlds of Journalism study, which was released by Massey University, a cooperation with other organisations around the world that looked at journalists in 120 nations, quite comprehensive. And uh, it's it, when asked how important different roles are for journalists in their work, after listing educate the audience, which was the first uh, uh, role that they listed at 3.99 on a one to five scale, the second highest role of journalists was to, quote, counteract disinformation. And this was only 0.04 below the first, so very close. Uh, And this role, which did not feature at all in the previous survey, has quickly become a central part of the perceived purpose of journalism uh, to, to Kiwi journalists. Additionally, the survey itself notes that there has been, quote, an interesting change. Journalists' support for the traditional neutral observer role such as being a detached observer and letting people express their views is dropping. And the activist role of advocating for social change has grown. And this probably represents quite a significant shift in the way the media sees itself and the role it has to play in society. As a a former editor of um, a a prominent newspaper, what would your perspective or, or comment have been to some of your juniors if they had started to say, my role is is second uh, to to counteract disinformation or misinformation? Hmm. Well, my first reaction, I guess, would be to say who who defines what is misinformation and disinformation? And, and, and it worries me greatly that we've got a generation of journalists now who are conceited enough to think that they can they can define these terms and basically decide on behalf of their audience what views they should be exposed to. I, I take the view that we're, we're actually a pretty liberal, um, enlightened society and people, and it does come back, I think somebody's talk, talked about the importance of trust before, and I think it does come back largely to, to the element of trust. I think the media have to trust people uh, given a, a range of um, facts and, and information presented neutrally to form sensible conclusions. Um, uh, and uh, let me give you a, a, a definition of journalism, which you'll very rarely hear these days, but I still think it's a pretty, it's a pretty good one. Um, and it comes from an American book called The Elements of Journalism, um, published long ago, needless to say. And it, and it says the purpose of journalism is to provide citizens with the information they need to make the best possible decisions about their lives, their communities, their societies and their governments. Nothing there about guiding them to make the right decisions or or, or, or leading them by the nose. Um, and, and, and I think that's where journalism has 
kind of lost its way. The line, the, the crucial dividing line between journalism and activism has become blurred. Um, and I don't, I don't want to harp on about this, but I, I come back to the role of universities here because we now have a generation of um, journalists, many of whom have been to university. Um, and, and I think that has conferred on them a, a sort of sense of authority. Um, uh, that they don't that they haven't necessarily earned. Um, when I got into journalism, I hate to hate to sound like in my day, uh, but back in the day, um, people came into journalism more or less straight from school, and they they learned on the job. Uh, they didn't spend um, three years at, at university. Um, uh, filling their heads with um, sometimes abstruse theories that weren't necessarily directly related um, to uh, to the practice of journalism, and they certainly never uh, had the conceit to think it was their function to guide their readers or viewers or listeners or whatever uh, to to the correct conclusions about things. And so, you know, the, the upshot of the, the sum total of all this, and I, this relates to some of the things Natasha said, is that there's been a, a kind of creeping ideological orthodoxy uh, in journalism, which we can see everywhere, and it's um, uh, it's it, it, and it can have a chilling uh, effect on public dialogue uh, because. Um, the debate becomes captured by uh, a, 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 an intellectual elite, for want of a better term, and as Natasha said, uh, people then become scared of expressing a, a contrary view. And so, as I say, it has a chilling effect and, and these dissenting voices are forced out into the margins. And that's when people are driven to, to online platforms, which, which may in fact... Um, you know, have a serve an unhealthy or have an unhealthy uh, effect, and that they do promote some sometimes pretty wacky ideas. Mm. So, I guess I just well, go follow ahead, up briefly because I think it's really important that journalists and academics do have a role in filtering out less reliable information. They don't just report anything that any old crank says. You know, um, they're meant to verify and they're meant to to help their readers arrive at a point of view that is well, not a not an ideological position, but a more accurate understanding of the truth, if I can use an old-fashioned word. But they can only do that if they do not carry an overt political agenda. Because once you become suspected of carrying a candle for a particular political perspective, then the trust and your actual ability to perform those duties, whether as an academic or a journalist, goes out the window. Um, and I think that, you know, when we've had members of both the journalistic elite but also the academic elite fusing obviously ideological with genuinely well-developed science, it becomes very difficult to sort out, well, do I believe you on that? I mean, if you're going to tell me that men can get pregnant, am I supposed to believe you on climate change? Um, and I think this, this is a key problem that hits both of those spheres. And just to complicate the picture, Natasha, we have the 
the Public Interest Journalism Fund, um, under which the government is um, is spending $55 million worth of, of taxpayer money in what is broadly perceived by many people as a, as a giant kind of state-funded propaganda exercise. And that's accelerating distrust in the media. It came along at probably the worst possible time, um, at a time when trust in the media was declining anyway. I think it's, it's been accelerated. Um, by the by, the perception that um, that the media are being paid to promulgate officially approved views on a whole range of issues, but starting with the treaty, to use the one that you chose yourself. The the truth, Natasha. I I haven't heard that word in years. <laughs> Where do we go from here? I guess that that's that's the really relevant, important question. As we go into next year, uh, I, I think a year that that stands to be quite significant uh, and for many reasons in New Zealand, not least of all, obviously, politically, uh, for, for better or worse, and there will be many perspectives on both sides, if ever there was an election where a minor party could cross that 5% threshold, it is possible that this is the election, and it is it is possible that we could see uh, some, some outliers come onto the fore here. In, in advance of that, what, what do we need to be doing? What does the free speech un, uh, union need to be doing? What does our society need to be doing? Uh, uh, Natasha, what would you want to see in 2023 in the university uh, in order to shore up our ability to have these conversations and, and strengthen social cohesion? Well, I think um, universities in New Zealand, many of them are in the process of developing or refining their own policies on freedom of expression. And I very much hope that they will come down on the side of freedom. Um, it's never complete or absolute, but nonetheless, I think the university needs to lean in that direction. I would also like to see a, a little bit more opening up of the discussion around the conflicts between the high-level principles of freedom of expression and academic freedom, and then the actual practices uh, that are embedded in policies and strategic statements and research ethics funding requirements that may work against freedom of expression and academic freedom. And I think putting those conflicts on the table um, is a really important exercise that universities need to do internally and then looking at their curriculum and saying, well, to what extent are we genuinely providing an environment for our students in which they will feel empowered to articulate and reason and engage, you know, uh, vigorously. Um, and I think we have we have work to do in that respect. At the Free Speech Union, you know, uh, we never try and present free speech as a simple uh, issue, and 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 sometimes it is exceedingly complex, and we have no problem showing our work, as it were, exactly what you're saying there, putting it on the table, and and there's transparency that emerges from that. That's interesting, Alex. You've talked about uh, empathy and kindness, and 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 uh, practical terms emerging as as a key path forward. Uh, do you, uh, you you used the word healing earlier? Do you think the COVID nineteen or the the world commission into the COVID-19 response, uh, will it play a part in terms of, of uh, reconciliation in our communities? Hmm, maybe. Truth and reconciliation. Um, <laughs> there's a precedent for that, I think. Look, I mean, look, the uh, I, I haven't read the terms of reference for the uh, for the commission. I've seen some sort of comment on them that makes me makes me a little bit sceptical about whether or not that will be the case. Um, my, my kind of personal take on commissions generally is that they can be really good. They can also be a bit of an exercise in um, taking controversy and sort of parking it somewhere safe that you don't have to deal with. So I, I wouldn't be putting too much reliance on the commission personally. Um, I think the solutions are more um, 
well, I, th- I think they're sort of uh, at, at multiple levels, but including, you know, just at that kind of personal level, uh, get out, interact with people, join something, um, preferably with people who uh, you've got something in common with, but they're also a bit different to you. Um, I think, in you know, coming back to your question about what can the Free Speech Union or other organisations do, um, I think for people who are prepared to kind of uh, ask questions or, or challenge the uh, the consensus and the status quo. Uh, sometimes those people are going to need um, a bit of air support and a bit of uh, and a bit of help um, when they come under fire. Uh, I think that's that's a really useful uh, thing that uh, not just the free speech union, but anybody who kind of says, "Look, we don't necessarily agree with you, but we really agree with the ability to be able to do these things because we think it's good for all of us." Um, I, I think you know we all need to play a part in uh, in, in actually kind of standing alongside people. Um, in that situation. And then I guess just the other thing that comes to mind, because you're pointing out that next year's an election year, is, is to try and sort of um, not just settle for a kind of a reasonably superficial exchange of views and say, well, we've got free speech, but it's actually to sort of get a bit more into the depth of some of these things. Uh, I think we've moved a long way towards what I call politics as comms, um, fairly sort of superficial rhetoric and sound bites and so on. And I think ideally the kind of free speech we'd like to see would actually be really kind of getting into the issues and testing people, uh, including, of course, on things like um, the, the hate speech um, change that's being made and when that eventually, uh, when the Law Commission uh, takes a look at that as well, a really kind of in-depth, reasoned engagement with that, all the way from law to policy to cohesion to values. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Carl, I recently um, was discussing the fact that uh, I grew up in Mozambique, was uh, educated in Kenya around a lot of Americans. And so I've spent a lot of time in the States uh, and, and my perspective there is is of a nation being torn apart, and it seems often because of the state of media. Uh, what what would you want to see in our media to as we go into an election year, which, which will be incredibly uh, divisive in many fronts, Politics is comms, trying to get those sound bites. Uh, how how can we improve that conversation in terms of the journalism that is being provided? I, I would like to see uh, a much more active commitment on the part of the media to genuine freedom of speech, uh, to the promotion of a genuine uh, diversity of, of views, which we are not getting at the moment. And just as a just as an aside, um, I think. It was significant that the Free Speech Union Conference um, a couple of months ago in Auckland went completely unreported by the news media. Uh, There is a complete failure on the part of most journalists to, or certainly the journalists in power, as far as I can tell, to see that freedom of speech is inextricably intertwined with freedom of the media and that every working journalist depends on freedom of speech every day of their working lives, both in what they report and in the, and in the commentaries they write. And if only there were a, a deeper appreciation of that, I think that would be a that would be a good starting point. Mm-hmm. Well, I um, mean, in in a similar vein, uh, the the passage of the uh, the hate speech laws has gone entirely unreported. Not a single article on on what is whether you support it or not. Quite a significant piece of legislation well, that. Okay. That has culminated after quite a significant conversation, and at the time of recording, at the moment, not a single article. Since, since you since you raised that, Jonathan, I've got in front of me an article, a quite substantial article from the Dominion Post of last Saturday, about uh, by by one of the um, staff political reporters about the proposed hate speech um, changes, uh, and as I say, quite a substantial story. 
quotes a whole lot of people on why the hate speech laws should go further than they do. Not a word there uh, from a, no mention of the free speech union, no uh, no reference to the fact that there is actually a, a counter view to all this. It is a totally one-sided, they've gone out of their way to approach all these people who think the hate speech law should be tougher. And they've found oh, one tiny paragraph right at the end to say that National Paul Goldsmith said the party would firmly oppose the legislation and any further legislation which may come. That is their idea of balance. Um, and... and this issue was one of the most successful public consultations ever, and uh, and and uh, you know whether they reported on it or not, the Minister of Justice got the got the point, and that's ultimately <laughs> what matters. But but with that in mind, that is why the Free Speech Union will be doing a lot more work next year around media. We'll be conducting a media freedom survey similar to our academic freedom survey and producing reports across the the media networks in terms of uh, in particular journalists and and organisations that are doing better than others at the very least in terms of facilitating facilitating this public conversation. Crucial in our days in terms of being able to uh, continue to pursue uh, social cohesion, which while a bit of an abstract term, actually is very important in, in making sure that our communities can continue to flourish. But but for now, concluding a big year for us at the Free Speech Union, for all of you as well, and, and for all of our listeners, can I just say thank you so much to all who make our work possible, who continue to invest in uh, ensuring that we can have this conversation freely and robustly to the three panelists here today. Thank you so much for your time as well. Merry Christmas. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening to the Free Speech Union podcast. If you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support, you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Kakitiano.